Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. This is Tommy Yanolis, one of the founders of Ops Analytica. I want to thank you for checking out the Order Up podcast. If you're looking to run better, safer, and more profitable restaurants, I highly encourage you to start managing by checklists and using the Ops Analytica Inspector to help you hold your managers more accountable and to get that increased visibility into your daily operations. Check us out online at opsanalytica.com or just search Restaurant Checklist app. Good day. This is Tommy Yanulis. I want to welcome you to another episode of Order Up, the Restaurant Operations Podcast. I am very. Uh, we are very lucky today to have Don Fox, who is the uh, CEO of Firehouse Subs, on the show today. So, Don, welcome to the show. Hey, Tommy. It's great to be with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, we were going to do this a couple of weeks ago, but then that hurricane blew through Florida. So we had to reschedule for today and uh, we are super excited to have you on. So Don, the format of the show is, is that we only talk about restaurant operations and restaurant operators. And I ask the same five questions to everyone. And uh, so I'm just going to kick it off with question number one, which is explain what you do today and then sort of take us through your career progression from sort of your first job to where you are today. You don't have to hit every job, like if you were a busser for six months in 1982. Don't worry about that. Oh, but just on, the big that was, stuff. That was, that, was the funnest, that was the funnest job. Come on. No. Uh, cool. Well, what, what I do currently, I'm the uh, chief executive officer of Firehouse Subs. Uh, we are a uh, national brand. Uh, we operate in 44 states, Puerto Rico, and a, a, made a new entry into Canada just at the tail end of last year. We have a uh, 1,016 restaurants that we operate in total. Uh, I've been with Firehouse since 2003. Uh, wow. When I joined them, there were 65 restaurants. So it was a much different universe than it is today with over 1,000. Uh, I joined them uh, then as the director of franchise compliance. Uh, out of those 65 restaurants, 30 of them were franchised. So it was the earliest days of franchising. There were 35 company-owned restaurants that they had. They were all located in well, predominantly Jacksonville, also some down in the uh, more towards South Florida, the Melbourne and Vero area, and a far flung front out in Little Rock, Arkansas. They had six or seven restaurants out there. Long story how they got to Arkansas back in those early days. But those are the company operations. Um, they had, as I mentioned, just started franchising not long before I came on board uh, and had uh, just before that, developed a go-forward strategy, which was to use franchising as the primary expansion tool. So uh, when I came on board, I was uh, really the only person uh, who had substantive franchise experience at that point. Uh, so I was brought on to lead the development of that part of the company. I uh, then became chief operating officer in 2005 and chief executive officer in 2009. But my history in the restaurant industry goes way back before that. Uh, my very first job at the age of 16 was washing dishes in a Italian restaurant in Lakewood, New Jersey, uh, called the Godfather, not the Godfather pizza chain, but this was just an independent uh, and uh, learned uh, a lot of what I needed to know about the restaurant industry at that two compartment sink. Now that shows says something about my age because there weren't even three compartment sinks back then. <laughs> And, uh, and and the ham washing tools were literally your hands. <laughs> there, was, there was nothing else. Um, I learned one of my earliest lessons in life was that your best friend, if you're a dishwasher, especially in an Italian restaurant, your best friend is the person who stirs the sauce pot. 
those in the audience that have washed dishes will get that. So, uh, yeah, that was my first job. It wasn't my uh, lifelong ambition, but I think that's true of a lot of people in the restaurant industry. Uh, uh, during my teen years and even into my early 20s, my ambition was to be a professional musician. I was a trumpet player. I discovered, uh, particularly by the time I was in my early 20s, that uh, that was a tough way to make a living. Uh, so I've been supporting myself through a variety of roles in the restaurant business. It had been in management as early as the age of 18. I was with uh, Six Flags Amusement Parks at that point. In fact, spent the next four years with Six Flags, worked my way into multi-unit management there for the first time. But then at the age of 22, decided uh, I'd put down the trumpet, at least professionally, and focus on a restaurant career because I loved it. Uh, and I was succeeding at it at a very early stage. So Knowing I wanted to focus on restaurants, I thought it would be best to join a restaurant company as opposed to working in food service in the theme park industry. And that led me to Burger King Corporation in Tampa, Florida. Had to take a little bit of a step back from multi-unit operations uh, to uh, assistant manager uh, back at more entry-level management. Uh, at, the, at the time when you're full of uh, piss and vinegar at that age. Uh, you, you think that's a, a downward step, but with now uh, many years under my belt, I can understand completely why at the age of 22, they wanted me to uh, go back and prove myself in a, in a restaurant. Uh, and uh, that led to a 23 year career with Burger King. Uh, so learned a tremendous amount during those years. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, what to do, but just as importantly, I learned, in fact, more importantly, uh, I learned what not to do. So a lot of mistakes made uh, with that brand. There were a lot of tough years with that brand, uh, revolving door of executive leadership, ownership changes in later years. So learned a lot of valuable lessons, uh, frankly, by, by watching the mistakes of others, making a, a few myself, uh, we all do. And it's a cliche to say that we learn from those. Uh, but really uh, parlayed that into what has become a very successful experience here at Firehouse. I think if not for, certainly if not for those experiences with Burger King, I would not have been as effective at helping to grow this brand to where it is today. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. I did stand-up for 10 years, so 23 to 33, and then worked in restaurants that whole time, but had a hotel restaurant degree, then started stand-up, and then was like a waiter and a busser. Yeah, and, you know. <laughs> well, at that point, stand-up took on a whole new meeting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So cool. Well, awesome. Thank you for uh, giving us your little your history there. Uh, what is the big project? This is question number two. Uh, what is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Well, in the broadest sense, we are really focused on trying to understand where the customer's head is at these days. Uh, and, and making sure that we are uh, adapting um, you know, correctly. Uh, most proactively stay ahead of it, keep ourselves in a uh, in in the growth position that that frankly all all brands need to have. Uh, I have a very basic philosophy in this business: you're either growing or you're dying. So you if, so so you bet if, if if you're not growing, you better uh, get that formula figured out in a in a hurry. So, like the rest of the industry, the last quarter in particular uh, has seen quite a bit of headwinds. And I think it, it dates back even farther than that. You could see some of the writing on the wall going back to about the fourth quarter of last year. Uh, certainly, we, we saw that in some respects in our brand. I could see it in uh, other, other segments of the industry. And I think these days, the, con the consumer is changing faster than ever. 
in terms of some of their behaviors and sometimes uh, driven by external forces. Uh, there's been much written of late about the, the gap between uh, restaurant pricing and retail pricing at the grocery store and how, how that is uh, presumably affecting uh, consumer behavior. But I think uh, other, outside of economic conditions impacting consumer behavior, there there's just um, some oh, oh, saying societal issues aren't, that's probably not the best way of saying it, but certainly in terms of around the the, the culture of food, the uh, some of the dietary considerations, the uh, the uh, uh, the the greening, if you will, of the of supply chain, uh, those things are increasingly starting to impact customer behavior. Um, put it under a health halo, uh, if you will. Uh, for for many many years, customers have talked health, but they eat something different. And but but I think uh, more recently they're 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 uh, changing uh, those patterns of behavior quicker and and one thing that's very always been fascinating to me about the restaurant industry is even though it is by all definitions a very mature industry some would say in fact now we've reached points of maybe oversaturation in terms of number of seats and, and units it is is unique among industries in that it can be mature but it can still openly embrace new entry. Um, no matter how mature, it is always ready for the next great brand uh, to be able to come in and, and capture market share. And, and that makes our industry, I think, unique uh, among uh, most industries. So so our main challenge right now is really understanding a lot of these behavioral things and figuring out where we need to best shift some of our attention and focus. And it's not just even on the menu uh, in terms of what people are buying, but it's also uh, the form of service uh, that we and, and our competitors provide. Uh, for example, a, a, a very uh, prominent trend over the last couple of years has been the increasing tendency for people to uh, dine outside of the restaurant, you know, off-premise consumption. And that poses a particular challenge for Firehouse because we've been unique in our segment in that for a number of years, the majority of our traffic dines inside as opposed to takeout. Uh, but we have not been immune from that shift. And in the last uh, year to two years, uh, we've seen a shift in our patterns where now on a system level, the majority of our checks are happening in the to-go uh, sphere. Uh, and, and again, our brand experience had been different than that in the past. And we really engineered ourselves to be, uh, predominantly or, or certainly above the 50% level, uh, dying in traffic. So, so we're trying to understand those dynamics, see if they're short-term or long-term and then uh, make the adjustments necessary. Uh, and those are critical questions for the brand, especially when you start considering things that have to do with your brand architecture, not just, uh, figuratively speaking, your brand architecture, but the literal architecture, uh, the size of your facilities, uh, the ideal seating capacity that you have. Those are all critical questions uh, that we've got to ask. And when you make those decisions, they are long lasting. And, yeah. and you, you embed those changes for quite some period of time. Uh, so, so we've really got to give them a, a, a lot of study. You know, on, the, on the menu side, as people are eating differently, one thing that we've come to realize and and we've begun doing some testing around it is that 
we may have a need for uh, a, ver a greater variety of menu options in terms of portion sizes. You know, Firehouse has been uh, famous for the uh, bountiful uh, portions that we use on our sandwiches. Our large subs, which are served on uh, approximately a, a, a foot long sub roll, uh, the standard build is is half a pound of protein, wow. and on a on a regular size or meat what we call a medium size sub, which is approximately an eight inch sub roll, uh, we have four ounces of protein. Uh, one of our sandwiches, even on a medium size, is six ounces. Uh, so that those are larger portions than uh, all of our national competitors. Uh, would uh, would have on on similar size uh, bread carriers, so we're well known for that, and our customers love it. But increasingly, uh, there are portions of the customer base that it would it would seem are just not looking to consume as much, whether it's conscious consciousness of calories or just overall bulk uh, that they're eating. So uh, we're doing some work on some smaller sandwich sizes, not decreasing the, the portions on the on the sandwiches that we're no, known for, the last thing I want to do is alienate any of our uh, core customers and the frequent customers, the, the loyal customers we've built up over so many years and, and in some way uh, change what Firehouse means to them. Uh, but I think there's a, an avenue that we can take through the addition of, of other uh, items uh, with uh, smaller portion sizes that it's going to help us satisfy the needs of uh, a set of customers who may not be visiting us as frequently as they would otherwise right now because we haven't had those options, or maybe some that have ruled us out altogether uh, because they just don't have an appetite uh, for the size of, of the product that we've had. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, being able to present those the smaller options, especially to women. Our, our customer base over the years is skewed slightly male, but that doesn't mean we don't serve plenty of, of women. And uh, I want to make sure that we've got a diverse enough menu to certainly appeal to all of them. So selling a smaller sandwich may seem like a simple project or concept, but enough, one thing I've learned over the years in this business is nothing is ever simple. As soon as you think something's a no-brainer, uh, you may as well be putting up a sign on your forehead that says, kick me. <laughs> because uh, because it's the unexpected thing that is going to rise up and, and really uh, present some challenges uh, for you. Well, yeah, well, yeah just going just back, going to, back the, to the... Interesting. Uh, I'm hearing an echo in my headphones. Sorry, that's weird. Um, so going back to the engineering thing, if you look at like a Jimmy John's, for instance, where they put two lines in one just for their delivery business, and then you have one for your, uh, you know, for your end guests, it's the same thing. You might need to do something like that, potentially, if you had a lot more to go traffic. Uh, correct. You know, one opportunity that we think exists out in the marketplace is uh, uh, the use of online ordering, uh, which, which I find fascinating as I study the, uh, the industry. Of course, if you're in the pizza segment, uh, especially if you're one of the major brands, you, you can't survive. That may be overstating it a little bit, but I'll, I'll, anyway, I'll stay with that language. You can't survive without online ordering. It is dominating um, the, those major pizza players. Um, uh, Domino's has famously taken the lead on the IT side 
the technology side uh, among the, the the big three uh, pizza players. And so they do significant uh, portions of their sales volume through online ordering. Uh, but they are fairly unique uh, in the industry. Now that the combination of their product and doing delivery really lends itself. It's it's a sweet spot for them. But if you look across the landscape of other brands, and I've had pretty good access to to data on all the our direct competitors or your, not even the direct competitors, just across a variety of chains uh, through sources like Technomic, who reports very good data on these things. And um, nobody's really knocking it out of the park, you know, in terms of the volume of traffic that they're doing in online ordering, at least among the major chains. Maybe there's some independents that have found a niche and are, 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 are doing some more. But, uh, but among the major brands, nobody's killing it on the level that the pizza players are. Now, is there the capacity, the ability to, to do that? Uh, perhaps. Uh, I'm really not sure. Um, as of this point in time, nobody's approached that level. But I think what we have to do is we have to optimize our, our online delivery process. We have to be super dependable at it. Uh, we have to, to be candid, we have to execute it better than what we're doing today. And that's going to take a, a combination of operational discipline, uh, maybe some change in the, in the architecture, the, the processes, and certainly some uh, improvements in the technology that goes behind it uh, so that we can deliver as seamless uh, a service experience as possible, really deliver a concrete benefit and and then when we're functioning at that high level well let's let's see how much of that that traffic we can shift over into it because an online order uh when you compare it to a, a transaction that's happening in the restaurant either because someone's walking up to the register and ordering to go or they did a phone in a call in order to go that online order is more economical uh, there's a labor savings to it, which is more and more important these days for a variety of reasons. Um, so, so if I can push that order into an online ordering uh, interface, uh, it's in all likelihood it's it's better uh, for the business model uh, all all the way around. But but one thing I think it's important with technology is you can't do it for the sake of doing it, or you can't do it simply because you think as the operator it produces a financial benefit. In the end, if it's not producing a benefit for, for the consumer, you're probably going down the wrong road. In, in fact, just to give you a, a, an anecdote along those lines. Several years ago, in fact, not long after we had launched our first iteration of online ordering, I was in front of a class of graduate students at the University of South Florida. And it was in their, the marketing arena. And they were doing a workshop. I came in as a guest speaker and 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 after after the talk we had a chance i had a chance to just ask them some questions and so we had just recently launched online ordering had only had it in place for about a year the number of online order orders that we were getting were very low and i asked the students and, and most of them had been firehouse customers i explained about the online ordering to them and i said what what do you think about that you know would you use it um and how would you use it? And the response that I got back then, now, now this is, keep in mind, this is about 2010. So, so some things have changed since then. But the answer I got then was a very candid, why would we wanna do that? Uh, 
because you serve hot subs. Now the the assumption was, so you see back then, especially when patterns were a little different, they were they were looking at it in the context of dining in. That's where they were likely to consume their meal. And so what they figured out very intuitively was, well, well look, if I use the online ordering, um, I don't know exactly when I'm going to get to the restaurant. So the product's not going to be as good as it is otherwise. Uh, I, I don't perceive that your service is slow when I get there. Uh, so no, I'm, there's, there's really no consumer need uh, for it. And then you're, so that was one of those situations where back in, at that time in 2010, you're saying, oh, all right, well, we've devised something that's more efficient for us, but, but, but you're never going to force it on the consumer because they're not seeing the benefit. Now, it's interesting, flat, flat, uh, flash forward six years, and if I was having that conversation again um, with the current class, it wouldn't surprise me if I got a different response. Uh, if, if just because of the trend of offsite consumption and, and the fact that other brands, not just the pizza brands, uh, but I would note of late Starbucks in particular are bringing it mainstream. And this is one of the other uh, key aspects when you're, you're leading a brand, you're trying to size up what direction the consumer is going and where the competitive set is going. You have to be keenly aware that even if your direct competitors may not be making progress on a certain front or may, may not be effectively implementing new technology or new processes, other players in the industry, if they do it effectively, and especially those that may touch a large portion of the customer base, if they do it effectively, it may change the paradigm. And I would venture to say that what Starbucks has started doing in the last year with their advanced online ordering uh, is they are probably the most likely contenders right now to create that paradigm shift. And it's real simple what they're doing, this ordering on the app, ordering online. Um, they have, you're paying online. So the order is just simply sitting there. You're walking in, you're identifying yourself or your order, you're picking it up and you're going. Now that's a lot easier to execute for beverages and packaged goods. But the more that becomes prevalent in other parts of the industry, I believe the more the consumer will come to expect it in other facets of the industry, uh, even though it may be more difficult to execute you know, in, other, in other facets. Well, yeah, so, because, oh, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, because you don't have heat lamps, for instance. So, you know, if I, if I order my sub online and I get caught at the stoplight and I can't get into the, to your shopping center to go pick up my sub, it could be sitting there getting cooler and soggier, right, over time. And it's not your fault. You or, you executed it on your side. So that could right. be. Right. And, and the, it was interesting when I've, um, when I've talked to some people about the Starbucks experience. Um, the, uh, their consumers, uh, kind of know how the system works. Uh, and you see their usage is different. It, it, and this is where it's a good fit for them because you have frequency within that consumer base that is so much greater than let's say the typical sandwich restaurant like ours. Whereas we might see on average a person twice a month. Um, uh, they have heavy users that are routinely coming in there multiple times a week. Yeah. 
And so that gives them an opportunity to uh, develop patterns of behavior and a level of familiarization that is just tougher uh, for most brands uh, by, by comparison. Uh, but uh, I think this, despite the greater challenges, customers will nevertheless uh, come to expect some of those benefits. Uh, and particularly as they shift their behavior uh, to, let's say in this case, to, to dining offsite more often. So there are things that we need to do uh, to, to address uh, our service systems, being able to sell our products in a manner that is most in line with customers' lifestyles and expectations. Uh, we have to look at packaging of our products uh, to be more to-go to friendly. Uh, we get very high ratings for our packaging now uh, through studies like Technonic. Um, in fact, we get some of the highest ratings in the industry for packaging. But e even though we do, we know that we have an opportunity to be better. Sure. Uh, so we've been uh, testing some some different forms of packaging, some uh, some very eco-friendly um, uh, carton type uh, packaging helps uh, protect the integrity of the of the sub uh, to, to a much greater degree. Uh, really looking forward to expanding that test and, and rolling that out in, in greater parts of the system. So, uh, so some of these uh, some of these projects, something like the packaging sometimes can seem like a lot of uh, sort of inside baseball type of moves, uh, smaller tactical things, but uh, but it's the sum total of them that it can really help reshape uh, the customer experience and and keep you more contemporary and uh, you know meeting customers' needs. For sure. Okay, question number three. Uh, what is the one thing in the industry or your business that's kind of got you a little, keeping you up at night, got you a little worried? Well, I'll tell you, my general answer to that, uh, you would have been able to pull that out of uh, my prior commentary. The thing that keeps me up the most at night is in the general sense, it's, uh, it's change. It's the pace of change. I wish uh, life and business were uh, simpler in the sense that when you work out your formula, you develop your brand, your processes, your procedures, your systems. Boy, I wish it was as simple as then just focusing on execution. Uh, so what keeps me up at night is the, the pace of change that's needed. Again, driven by the consumer, by and large, but also driven by other things, dri driven by government action, regulation. Uh, we are in a constant change environment. And, and that can, as the CEO, or frankly, down to the restaurant manager, uh, do a good job keeping you up at night. But on the flip side of that, it's that atmosphere and that environment of change that also gets me pumped up when I wake up in the morning. Sure. You know, you go to bed at night and you're saying, oh my God, change. And But you get up in the morning and say, all right, change. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's go get it and, and attack it. Uh, so it... Uh, it, so it, it it plays a different role or change has a different impact on both both ends of the uh, spectrum. Uh, now, other than that general philosophical uh, question of what keeps me up at night, I think more recently uh, what uh, keeps me up, and, and this ties into change, uh, I, uh, I worry mostly about the, the outside forces, the third party element, government in particular, who through their actions, threaten our business model mm -hmm. uh, it uh, it makes it more and more difficult 
to both sustain and to grow a business, especially more important to grow it. Makes it more difficult for our franchisees, uh, makes it more difficult for us as a as a, a franchisor entity. So pound for pound, uh, I and on behalf of my brand and on behalf of my franchisees predominantly, uh, are more active in government affairs and advocacy than I would venture to say any brand in the industry, you know, pound for pound. So I, I think it's uh, I think it's real critical to be involved on that front, and and I think hand in hand with that, it's important to develop positions uh, revolving around what we are for as an industry uh, or as a brand, uh, as opposed to just being against things. Now, for example, uh, when it comes to the topic of the salary and overtime provisions, you know, there's a new, the new regulation will kick in on December 1st. That's very onerous for a lot of operators uh, uh, lifting from the current $455 a week uh, minimum and going up to $913 a week. Uh, uh, you know, basically about what uh, shy of twenty four thousand up to forty seven five. Um, you see, I would I'd be the first person in line saying that it should go up, that it was too low for too long or for uh, for too long. It was I think the last time it had moved was in two thousand and four, um, and that and that was the right move at the at the time. But uh, but too many years have passed without uh, with, without it rising just with inflationary pressure and so on. And uh, uh, so I would have been the first to say, yes, it should have gone up, but a, a much fairer uh, number, equitable number for, for all would have been probably something in the, oh, annualized, maybe 36, 37,000 uh, dollar range. Um, but uh, you know, what's, what's gonna take place in December is going to uh, really change the paradigm uh, for what uh, being in a salary position means, a, a lot of people, for a lot of companies, are going to lose their salary positions. They're uh, they're going to go uh, to hourly positions out of just financial necessity. You know, not every business just has the capacity to uh, to give people raises overnight on on the range of ten or um, fifteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Well, so, you... uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Did you have a bunch of restaurants that were in Seattle proper that also got affected by their uh, minimum wage hikes? And yeah, not you know, not in Seattle proper. Uh, not Seattle proper. We're newer to the Pacific Northwest, and we do have some restaurants in the Seattle DMA, but they're out in the suburbs, and they perform very well. We have great operators out there. Uh, so the impact of the uh, I know it'll be at fifteen dollars come January one of two thousand seventeen, but the impact of that is it is completely stymied growth uh, we're we're blessed to have franchise candidates who were willing to remain in the area and operate outside of the city boundaries or where, where the uh, wage is in effect but those that had been looking at going uh, inside the city withdrew their interest so uh, i can tell you firsthand while while you may hear some advocates or pundits saying that, oh, there's no sign that, you know, there's there's an impact. I can tell you empirically, there's a negative impact. At the very least, 
it has prevented people from setting up shop, from doing business uh, in Seattle. Now, maybe various people in Seattle don't care to see another restaurant. So, so maybe they don't think that's a big deal. But I think it's a big deal to the uh, person who may have made that investment in the community. Uh, I think it's a big deal to the person who might have had a really good, well-paying job as a general manager running that restaurant or an assistant in the restaurant. And it's a big deal for the hourly employees who would have worked there uh, and then now don't have the opportunity to. It's a big deal for those people. So uh, I, I think it uh, it's, uh, it, at least in that case, uh, it's been mandated too much, too fast. Uh, and uh, at least I, I know from our experience, it's produced some, some negative uh, results. I think over time, we'll see what, what the overall benefit is. I, I stay as open-minded as I can on all issues. Uh, it's important to note that uh, to the best of my recollection, it's not at $15 anywhere yet. So people people will talk about $15 minimum wage as though, oh, or it's already in place and working successfully. Well, no, it's it's passed uh, legislatively or, or in, in some areas, but it's actually not in place anywhere yet. And we'll see how it goes as it's rolled in. You know, in New York, for example, uh, it's it's passed there, but but it won't be at uh, fifteen dollars, I believe, until twenty twenty one. I think, if I'm recalling it correctly. Uh, so it phases up a dollar per year. That will be an, another interesting one to follow. Uh, but it's not like you can look at it today and say whether it's succeeded or not. Again, will it have influenced people's investment decisions or desire to grow? Yes, I I know. Well, we don't have a lot of restaurants in New York State. Uh, in fact, in New York City, it's set up so that the, the jump to 15 will happen faster than it does around the rest of the state. I know it's influenced the the um, uh, the attitudes and the confidence of some of the operators that we do have. It's made them more hesitant, um, you know, questioning the, the wisdom of reinvesting or building more restaurants until they have a better feel for, uh, for, for how the increase in wages will impact uh, things. Uh, I am, while it's, you know, in the broader sense, when we talk about federal minimum wage, which has been at 725 for some time, uh, sometimes my uh, my peers uh, in the restaurant industry would not necessarily agree with my point of view on this. But um, I, I do believe that minimum wage, generally speaking, uh, cannot stay locked down at 725 an hour on some seemingly permanent basis. Uh, I do believe that there's a, a, a different formula should be applied than, than what's talked about these days because the economy is different in different markets around the country. Uh, uh, factors vary. Uh, a a one-size-fits-all approach on wage is, I don't think, appropriate. Um, and, and so states and municipalities have taken that sort of under advisement and they've enacted uh, their own uh, local actions uh, in conjunction with what uh, local cost of living and, and so on is that. And, and, I, and I think that's the, the better route to take on it, but, but still even at the national level. Now, let me put it this way. I think all reasonable people would agree that if we were to suggest that 10 years from now, minimum wage would still be at 725, 
well, something's wrong. <laughs> as, as long as there's going to be a minimum, minimum wage, you can get into a, a great academic debate on whether having a minimum wage actually lifts or suppresses wages. Some would argue, and I think with some success, that having a minimum wage actually suppresses wages. Mm -hmm. um, because then it gives the, uh, it, it takes away some of the competitiveness for labor. It, it allows many business owners to, to offer that um, because they don't have to offer anything else. And really the marketplace should, uh, should, should drive it. But in any event, if you're putting that aside, if you just accept the premise that there will always be a minimum wage, then it has to go up. You know, it's just a matter of when and how much and having it go to a reasonable level. So I think the, uh, the national argument for a quote unquote fight for 15, uh, that is uh, not a sustainable argument. It's very destructive. It is going to cost jobs. It is, it's, it's going to ruin businesses. It is um, going to cause rampant inflation certainly within the restaurant industry. Uh, and, and in the end, the, the, actually, the people who are on the end of the economic ladder that would benefit from a, such a substantive increase in minimum wage, they are also disproportionate consumers of the products that are most impacted from an inflationary standpoint by minimum wage. So, so in the end, uh, they really don't net out in a in a real uh, real positive way, I think there's other ways to approach it, and this goes back to the advocacy front. I, I think uh, one great opportunity for us is to um, use tools like the Earned Incomes Tax Credit as an example, uh, ways to try to uh, help lift at people out of poverty, but lift people out that are willing to work. Um, and uh, you know, if we want to do something societally. Hey, let's uh, let's leverage programs like that that can actually reward people for wanting to be in the in the workforce, uh, getting a job, and then all being pulled together. Because because the consumer is going to pay for it one way or the other. Mm -hmm. You can pay for it through something like an earned income tax credit, which will which will help target those most in need, or you're going to pay for it at the cash register. You know, through through increased prices. For sure. So, yeah, so those are uh, so things like that. Those the reason it it, it uh, concerns me so much or worries me so much is because unlike almost every other part of my business, I can't control uh, the, those outside influences, but they impact my P and L. They impact the health of my franchisee's business as much or more than anything that hits me in the marketplace via competitors, via consumer trends, um, and and. Uh, and in all other areas, I can control my destiny, whereas when it comes to government, uh, I can't. Absolutely. We were having this exact, com I was having this exact conversation yesterday with another, uh, he was a former CEO of a couple of restaurant chains, and you guys sort of said relatively the same exact thing. But one point that he made that I thought was, was very interesting too, was that this is going to raise people up out of the poverty level. And so now there's all these people who think, that they're going to get this $15 an hour minimum wage, they don't recognize that the prices are gonna go up because they have to, because the companies mm -hmm. have to still maintain margins, but now they're gonna actually have to start paying taxes on their <laughs> income. And so it's really, they're worse off, yeah. they're worse off in $15 than they are today. You know, you know, it's, you know it's, hard, it's hard to educate the general population on 
the business model. You know, you get into an ac academic discussion and and I don't expect people to have sympathy for us in our business. Um, you know, they just want to be consumers and I want to make them happy. But but here's here's the reality of it, the best I could explain it. Let's say uh, a, a typical restaurant uh, spends a total of 30% of sales on labor. That's hourly labor, management, fringe benefits, payroll taxes, soup to nuts, your human resource related expense, 30 cents out of every dollar. Of that, uh, again, a typical restaurant uh, is about 18% is strictly for the hourly employee payroll cost. That's not including the payroll tax or, or the, again, excluding the salary management, about 18%. So let's assume that's in a, uh, a 7.25 an hour state, Texas, 7.25 an hour. Well, if you all of a sudden lifted minimum wage to $15, as some would propose, you're more than doubling hourly labor. Now, the average restaurant across all brands, independents, average profit margin for a restaurant is 5% pre-tax. Some people may not believe that, but that's a fact. Um, <laughs> it's 5%. It's 5%. Others have more. Yeah. Fire, uh, my, one of my company restaurants now, closer to 13%. Uh, larger brands may have larger numbers, but bottom line for the restaurant industry, 5% is the number. So you can't afford to lower that. I mean, why be in business? All right. So let, let's go with the 5%. So, so if my current payroll cost is 18% of sales, typical for the industry, I double minimum wage. There's a, there's a flow through factor. Let's just assume then I'm doubling my hourly payroll cost. So now if I don't raise prices, my hourly payroll goes from 18% of sales to 36% of sales. Well, 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 gosh, I was only making 5% profit. I'm now negative 13%. Uh, it's, I'm out of business unless I raise prices or unless I cut jobs, but, but, but let's say for a moment that, you know, there's no productivity to be gained. Maybe everybody is always fully, already fully productive. I can't cut any hours unless I'm going to further erode my sales because now I'm giving bad service and so on. So what's my option? I've got to raise prices to cover it. Well, it's not just a matter now of raising prices penny for penny, which I'd have to raise prices 18%, you know, to make up for the additional 18% of payroll cost, because there's a multiplier on top of it. I've got to pay payroll taxes on that money. I've, if I pay percent rent, let's say for my property, I don't have fixed rent, let's say as a, as a percentage of sales. So I've raised prices, my revenue goes up, it means I have to pay more rent. So there's a multiplier on it. If I'm a part of a franchise system, I pay a royalty. I pay marketing fees that are based on a percentage of sales. So I don't just have to raise prices 18% to just stay even and make my 5% profit. I may have to raise, there's a multiplier, I may have to raise prices at least 20, could be as much as 25%. What you're, you're talking about inflation then that is just going to absolutely kill restaurant traffic. You know, some some people will look at it and say, oh, well, you know, a hamburger right now costs me 
$5. Oh, sure, for the greater good, I'm willing to 20% increase. I'm willing to spend $6 for that hamburger. If that means uh, employees in the restaurant industry can go from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour. But here's the problem. On that one occasion, they may say they're willing to do that. But the bottom line is the American family, the American consumer will not spend more over the course of a year for dining away from home, from home than they do now. It is a virtual constant since 1960 that the American consumer, American household spends between 4.75 and 5% of their income on dining away from home. It barely changes after 60 years. And nothing, nothing's going to change that. So if you have rampant inflation on that, on that order, then what's going to happen is consumers will continue to spend the 5% of their disposable income and traffic is going to go down. They will simply go out less often. And when there are less visits to restaurants, what happens? Well, now I need less employees because I'm making less food. I'm serving less guests and it's going to backfire. And yes, maybe some of the people that are in there are going to be making some higher wages, but there are going to be less jobs to go around. And the the unemployment factor in at least in our segment of the economy in this industry is going to be substantive. And 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 where that really becomes a shame is that it takes away the opportunity primarily for people trying to get their first job, because first and foremost, that's what the restaurant industry is about. We are and I'm proud to say we are an incubator for talent. We are the first job for so many people, uh, the first opportunity, especially for those that are unskilled, uh, sometimes uh, with, without uh, so much as a high school education, that otherwise have very little, if any, options available to them. And we're there for them uh, and able to provide those opportunities and then can create an environment for unparalleled advancement. Uh, our, our industry famously provides opportunity and and road to advancement unlike any other industry i i i I, there's there's a lot of ceos that share my story and can tell you that they started in the dish room it's more common than not i believe uh but still not every i recognize not everybody can be ceo there's only so many ceo opportunities but there are hundreds of thousands of opportunities in fact millions of opportunities there's a million restaurants in the in the United States. That means you have a million managers, unit level managers. There are countless opportunities for people to rise up from those entry level positions. If first and foremost, they have the desire and the ambition, the, the, the desire and the ambition to learn more, to improve themselves, to work hard at what they do, to improve their lot in life. That opportunity is there for them all day. and. And you have so many countless people that then have been able to carve out a livelihood for themselves doing something that um, uh, they, at an income level that they never would have been able to achieve. So, uh, so as our industry comes under assault and, and the, the, the business model is attacked and we're able to build less restaurants or employ less people, uh, we're, we're just... Unfortunately, seeing that those 
opportunities are then being reduced and, and the capacity for us to help lift people up into really good, solid middle income uh, positions uh, has, has been damaged. Yeah, it is a scary time right now. Hey, Diana, hey, we're coming up on the hour here, and I don't know if you have a hard stop, but why don't we skip question number four and go right to question number five, which was recount a really funny uh, story that happened to you in your career, and I also want to give you some time to sort sure. of promote what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, boy, there are so many, but um, in fact, but but I want I want to relay one that uh, actually didn't happen to me personally, but. Uh, uh, became a story that was near and dear to my heart um, that I so often use as an example for others to learn by. Um, during my time with Burger King, I spent six years in research and development. I was there from 1989 to 95 and uh, worked on a lot of projects, um, both in menu development and equipment design, a host of things. And I, I, I'm a big believer in storytelling and, and, and seeing stories passed down sort of becomes part of the culture of organizations. I will never forget uh, the first story that I was told when I joined the research and development team at Burger King. And this is along the lines of uh, there never being such a thing as a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And as the story goes, uh, it was Burger King's first attempt to test pizza. And they outfitted a test restaurant with ovens and hoods, big capital investment. And this was to sell full size pizzas. They go through all this work and training and they, they're ready for the first sale uh, of a pizza. And it's ordered through the drive-through and they bake the pizza and they bring it over to the window and they realize it won't fit through the window. <laughs> so uh, great, um, great cultural lesson. That's in fact, I've I've used it countless times uh, to remind people there is never such thing as a no-brainer. Always do your due diligence in every regard, uh, because the, sometimes the least expected thing is going to come up and uh, and bite you. Um, uh, you know, one other thing I would mention historically, uh, yeah, also this goes back to my Burger King career, was a, a great lesson. And I think one day I'll, well, I did write a, a column about this actually just recently, but but I think it's worth noting. I'll try to make it a short version of it. Um, I was with Burger King in 1992 when Hurricane Andrew struck. And that was such an extraordinary event because the Burger King headquarters was at ground zero. Uh, as was my home. I, I didn't live all that far from there. And, and uh, we were knocked out of our home for a good nine months. And we were knocked out of the Burger King office for as long or longer than that. I mean, it really took a devastating hit. And, and at that time in 1992, the, I would say that the culture, the corporate culture at the headquarters was not that good. Uh, a lot of people were down on um, a Grand Metropolitan, which had bought Burger King in 1989 from the Pillsbury Company. And uh, there was not a lot of love lost between leadership of Burger King at the time and uh, and its employees. It was pretty bad. But along comes this hurricane and and knocks out the headquarters. And to the credit of then CEO Barry Gibbons, who uh, Barry, um, and this isn't meant to be a slam or anything, but he was not well liked uh, within the headquarters team. 
But when that happened, he and his team did everything right. Uh, they stepped up. And, and this isn't a day when you didn't have technology that you do today. People weren't accessible with cell phones and you didn't have direct deposit checks. I mean, there were, there were a lot of things that were, uh, we made it a lot more difficult to reestablish communication and, and to make sure that people were taken care of and okay. But, and crisis planning wasn't in place preemptively the way it is today. But they did everything right under a ton of pressure. And overnight, literally, they gained the loyalty and the commitment of some 800 plus people working in that headquarters in an extraordinary way. And it went from being a culture of people who almost despised their leadership to swinging completely the other way to having deep respect and admiration for them and then uh, being willing to fall on the sword for just about anything uh, that leadership team would uh, see being necessary to be done. Uh, but then there was a change in, in uh, executive leadership and it was only about a year later, not much more than that. And after a change in leadership, they announced, and this was not long after we actually got back into that refurbished headquarters building and we're just starting to resume life as normal. And they announced that they were going to do a sweeping reorganization, which, of course, inherent that in that is the uh, threat of layoffs and, and so on. And that totally, totally trashed all the equity that they had built up through those bold moves they had taken when such dire circumstances have been thrust upon them. And boy, that has been a lesson that has stayed with me uh, for over over well over 20 years 24 years now um you know when your culture is so important to every organization it's it's at the at the very base of what it takes to have a successful brand and a successful organization and if you were and if you don't have a good culture you know as a leader especially the larger your organization is it is the toughest challenge a leader can face to try to revamp or change or improve the culture of an organization. So even though it was through something as terrible as that hurricane, when you are given this unbelievable opportunity to reshape culture, uh, you know, through through outside circumstances in that fashion, my gosh, don't squander it. And it has always stayed with me that that was such a uh, a valuable lesson. Uh, and and reinforces the need, and this is really my main mission within Firehouse Every Day, is, is what can I do to uh, continue to protect and nurture and, and still even improve upon the culture of our organization and our, and our brand? Because I never want to be in that position where I have to uh, count on or, or hope for some intervening force uh, to, help me, uh, to help me change it. So uh, I, I guess the, the last thing I want, I want to close on you asked before about uh, you know what we might have that are current initiatives and so on. I'm always remiss uh, if I'm speaking about our brand to if if I don't talk about the thing that is of greatest importance to us. And it's not about selling sandwiches. Uh, what what really drives our mission uh, more than ever is what we do with our Firehouse Hubs Public Safety Foundation. 
we uh, earlier this year crossed the $20 million mark for donations of life-saving equipment to uh, fire departments, police departments, uh, EMS. Uh, we have a, a military component of our mission. Uh, along with our customers, actually, our, our, I always have to hand it to our customers. They are so giving. Um, over 60% of the funds that we raise for the foundation come from our customers. The other money comes directly from us, our employees, our franchisees, our vendors. But all told, it, it's allowed us to make a great impact on so many lives in the communities uh, that we serve. We've done these equipment donations all throughout the country in all the states and the communities that we operate in. And it, it really brings it home when we have the chance to hear the stories on how that equipment is used to save lives and, and even better yet on the occasions when we actually get to meet the people face to face that that equipment has, has saved. So as we continue to grow our brand and, you know, we're, we're now at 1,016 restaurants, we should finish this year at about 1,060. Our ultimate goal in the U S is to develop a, about 2,500 restaurants in the contiguous 48 states. What gets me most excited about doing that is the knowledge that every time a franchisee opens another restaurant, that's one more opportunity we have uh, to touch a community through our foundation, uh, to, to donate life-saving equipment that we know is gonna be put to use and, and save lives. And sometimes, ironically, those lives are actually people that are directly associated with our brand. Uh, that that's actually happened on a number of occasions that it saved one of our own and and that really really uh, brings it home and that's uh more than selling sandwiches that's what we really live for these days wow that's really cool well don thank you so much for being on the order up show today i want to uh, tell everybody go out and have a firehouse sandwich and uh definitely go and uh just we just really appreciate it and you have a great day don Thank okay, you. terrific, Tommy. All right, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.